This episode of the Planet Microcap podcast is brought to you by Friedman LLP, a top 40 global accounting, tax, and business consulting and advisory firm, providing a full spectrum of services for public and private companies since 1924. Contact Friedman when you will need to raise capital and adhere to U.S. standards. The Friedman partners will work diligently with you to provide the financial assurance, regulatory, and transactional services you need. When the stakes are highest, Friedman makes sure you are well equipped. For more information and to get a Friedman free consultation, please call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. Again, for more information and a free consultation, call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 176. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. Now, one quick announcement. Save the date. We just announced our next virtual conference, the SNN Network Summer Virtual Event, which will be held on August 17 through 19, 2021. The website is now live and you can find the full details on the event at our website, which is conference.snn.network. Registration is open, so click the register button once you are there. If you register, you'll also be able to get all sorts of information as we update it, speakers, sponsors, presenting companies, the whole deal. So I look forward to seeing you all there. And that's at conference.snn.network. Now for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Ben Clareman and Eugene Robin, the Principal Portfolio Manager and Principal Research Analyst, both respectively, at Cove Street Capital. When I chatted with Ben last year for episode 135, he told me about his colleague, Eugene, who has some great microcap stories to tell. So I thought it'd be fun to have them both on to chat about all things microcap. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 176 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Ben Clareman and Eugene Robin.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and joining me today are two guests. We got a, we got a two-for-one special today. Uh, joining me right now is returning guest, Ben Clareman, and newbie, new to the show, Eugene Robin, both from Cove Street Capital. This is going to be your classic microcap. We're going deep into stories the whole bit. So I want to welcome my guests. Guys, thank you for joining me today. What's going on? Thanks for having me back. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be back. It's great to have you, man. And Eugene, welcome. You know, you're, you're, you're in the right spot. I like the guitar background. I mean, you're, you're made for podcasting. This is, no, this is my, this is my designated podcast spot. Someone actually, people keep uh, messaging me like, Hey, wow. I really love the guitars. And I'm like, yeah, not mine, man. Sorry. <laughs> actually our, our, uh, our founder and CIO, Jeff, he's a, a big guitar fan. So he has like probably a dozen in the, in the office and, uh, I just, this room is great. So I usually use it to, you know, pretend like I play. And, hey, look. and it has, and it has happened that during conference calls with companies, Jeff will just start playing and the management teams will be like, is anybody else hear music? Does he have a theme song for each call? It's like, Oh, this is a Not good a, call. So I'm going to play, I'm going to play this clear. It's unclear why, he, what, why he chooses the specific song, but um, needless to say, we have a slightly informal culture here, um, and and you know part of our um, we have we have three goals here: delight, delight clients, have fun, make money, and so we definitely have fun in 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 trying to do the other two things. That's for sure. I mean, that would be pretty hilarious if people are like, "Wow, okay, this is a signal from Jeff. If he's on the call, he's playing like a blues song. It's like, oh." That's not so good. You know what? He's playing, like, he's playing like an upbeat. Yeah, he's playing like an upbeat, like Jimmy Henry or you know whatever. And and I'm like, wow, okay, all right. This uh, this might must be a good call. Yeah, that's we we're, we're gonna mention that to Jeff. Like he should start every call with like a song that's based on his mood. <laughs> That'd be hilarious. All right, so. Ben, if you don't mind, I'm going to take five minutes because this is Eugene's first time on here. You know, I want I want to give everybody a little bit of perspective. You know, because we're going to be we're going to be talking microcap stories and everything. You know, but first things first, Eugene. You know, introduce yourself to our audience. You know, what give us a little bit about your background and and why your and your fascination with microcaps. Sure. Uh, okay. Let's see. Well. Once upon a time, I actually had a real job, and unlike everyone else in the office, I, my degree is technical. I was an English lit major like Jeff. Um, I had a computer science degree. I was a software engineer for actually one of our holdings in our small cap value strategy, Biasat. Uh, went back to school at UCLA and got an MBA there. In the process of doing that, I randomly met a, a guy who wound up being the son of one of the billionaire families in Kuwait. And I, you know, just life is really random. Sometimes I started working for their family office and I uh, spent almost four years um, kind of doing everything under the sun. I think when, when you're in the Tres Comas club, you know, it, it, you have a lot of things that you're involved in. So it gave me a kind of a crash course um, right after business school and uh, just general finance and everything from aircraft leasing to, uh, you know, fund of funds to hedge funds to direct investments. And, you know, it, 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 it was, it was odd and strange and also a, a great learning opportunity. Um, then I met uh, Jeff actually through uh, one of the 
former partners here, Danielle, um, and started a Cove day one with him uh, and Ben. Uh, so we've been here almost 10 years now, which is crazy to think about. It'll be 10 years on June 30th. Um, yeah, so time flies. Um, anyway, and then, and then uh, in terms of your question about why microcap, you know, it's funny, uh, when we first started Cove, I mean, we we're very small. I, I think we have maybe 200 million or so in assets. And when, when you're smaller and that's in the small cap space, I think you can tend to skew smaller in terms of the names, just given the liquidity profile. Um, and, uh, you know, we had smaller companies that we owned back then and, you know, saw some of them grow up. Um, and over the next couple of years, I've figured, well, hey, you know, this is kind of an interesting spot to fish around in, in general. Um, and unfortunately, you know, our, our core strategy, well, fortunately, it, it grew and we, you know, we were successful and it scaled and eventually got to about a billion dollars. And so we couldn't buy the things that, you know, were in that sort of space anymore. Um, but lo and behold, uh, we had actually a client come in maybe six-ish years ago and allocate some money dedicated to uh, like a subset strategy. And that was within this micro, uh, micro cap space. And, you know, I, you know, Ben, I think, um, gravitated towards the, the Buffett companies over time. And he, he, you know, realized that like, Hey, look, we're in small cap and it's kind of like a weird self-selection problem where we find great, if we find a great business, it grows out of small cap. Right. And so he's like, well, why don't we go a little bit higher? Right. Not just concentrate on three billion and under and maybe go up to 10. And so that's kind of how, you know, he's the, he's the PM of uh, our small cap plus strategy, which is, um, kind of, you know, that's what he intends to do is basically take a lot of the work that we do for small cap and grow, you know, let those companies kind of appreciate and grow into, you know, his, his neighborhood. Right. And then plus he has you know, a bigger fishing pool to deal with. You know, I, I kind of went the other way. <laughs> I'm like, Hey, how can I find the craziest, wackiest, you know, like if I say the name of the company, literally me, maybe seven people in the world know what the hell I'm talking about. So I, I went that way, but at the same time, you know, kind of applying the lessons that I think both Ben and I learned um, when we started at Cove in terms of, you know, what is really investable. Um, you know, I, I think we both arrived at the same conclusion, you know, from maybe like different, different angles, but it's like, what do I really look for in micro? I don't, I don't, you know, there's tons of, there's like 4,000 micros, technically speaking, and 3,920 of them are what we consider the, the quintessential, like no one gives it, you know, a sh you know, I'm going to cuss. No one gives a shit companies. Right. So like if, if it disappeared tomorrow, like you wouldn't care who cares. Right. If, if whatever, uh, I don't know, Abercrombie disappeared, no one cared because there's 10,000 other, you know, clothing retailers and whatnot. So well, as an, as, as an, as, as as an investor, you wouldn't care, you know, maybe some, well, yeah, well, some of the businesses might care a little, you know, we got jobs on the line and stuff. Like true, that. But, true. But yeah. in terms of like, is there a real, is there a reason for this thing to exist? Right. And so micro cap is just littered with these like entities that, um, you know, for whatever reason are happen to be public, but most likely, you know, are 
subscale or run poorly or just in bad areas and industries. And, you know, I, I've just learned over time to sift through all that and, and concentrate on the better ones. And so those better ones actually are interesting because if we can get them at the, an earlier enough life cycle, right, where before they can maybe hit their stride due to various events or kind of uh, catalysts that emerge, we, we can grow with them. And, uh, you know, the next step for a micro, it, it actually would graduate into our small cap value strategy. And then obviously, if, uh, I wish we haven't had one yet, but it will eventually get into Ben's world, right? Um, that's the ultimate success of the, of the 100 bagger. Um, so, I mean, that's, I, I, I graduated to a micro because I, I feel like the ability for someone to hit, you know, the grand slam, forget about the home run, but the grand slam is is just a high, it's just a higher likelihood there, right? All else being equal. And certainly it's hard because you are sifting through a lot of crap that, you know, it's just, it's, you know, that world is riddled with fraud. It's riddled with people who, you know, failed Chinese reverse mergers, uh, old SPACs that have become defunct, you name it, right? I've come across whatever, whatever you can think of, I've, I've probably uh, come across it. But anyway, that's, that's really why I grabbed it. It's, it's, it's eclectic. Um, lots of oddities. And, and I think for people who do a lot of diligence, like we do, right, we, we don't invest in a hundred different names. We concentrate on our best ideas and that forces us to actually do work. You know, this like crazy concept in the investment world, where not just, you know, read the K and then invest, but you know, read the K, um, find former employees to talk to, find people that went on to competitors to talk to, uh, really understand how they actually make that marginal dollar, right? Gotcha. And, and do a lot of more work than the typical person in our space. And if you apply that into microland, where there's you know one tenth of the number of eyeballs, you can really make outsiders outsized returns. Absolutely. I mean, that's why that's why we exist, right? You know, is yeah. to continue to to give a microphone to a space that can provide. S- there is inefficiency and can provide so much value if you just do, you know, do a little work, you know, yeah. no, it up somewhere. But you know, I wanted to, I wanted to go to Ben here on this next question because, you know, clearly you have you have a, a coworker here, a colleague who is obsessed with microcaps. You know, I, I think it's not. I'm not being too strong when I say obsessed. You know, and. <laughs> And, you know, I wanted to ask a little bit more on the fund structure side as to how you can participate in some of these kooky, out of the way ideas that, you know, that Eugene might bring to you. Like, oh, this is a sub 10 million market cap. Like, let's back up the truck and do, and do this. You know, like, how, how can you do this and participate for where, for where the fund's currently at, at the level it's at? Yeah, so um, we have what I would call concentric circles at Cove Street. And so our core is small cap value and so that's a you know kind of three billion and under market caps um and then i co-manage our smith strategy which is a billion in market cap to 12 billion and then we have a micro cap strategy which is i don't know basically sub a billion sub sub 500 million i mean depending depending on you know what the opportunity set is and so eugene leans more small and i lean more large but you know that core is a small cap, and we all work on ideas or anything on small cap. So there's a lot of overlap between these strategies. So um, you know what I love about what what I, what I love about microcap is that the, is the evergreen opportunity, um, and 
there are so many companies that get fewer and fewer eyeballs on them and the sell side basically abandoned the space. And, you know, there's just all kinds of wackiness, whether it's the structure, the physical, you know, where it's located, the ownership structure, the end, you know, kind of small end markets that they're in that no one's paying attention to. There's just a, there's a never ending opportunity to be successful. Now, of course, there's the never ending opportunity to be majorly unsuccessful and lose all your money as well. Um, but so, so the way I look at it is there's a spectrum of inefficiency in the world. And so if, if like large cap US value is probably one of the more efficient markets in the world and, um, you know, uh, African private equity investing is probably on the inefficient scale. Microcap exists on way farther down on the inefficiency scale. And so that leads to opportunities, especially if you're willing to do a fair amount of work. Um, and, and so as Eugene said, that's, that's exactly what we do. Um, and, you know, I, it's, it's almost like there's always something that you can make money on. Um, and if there's, in, 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 in the SMID world, it's more about time arbitrage. It's more about contrarian as opposed to developing an edge, which is, you know, what, what Eugene spends all of his time digging in these, you know, in these spaces that aren't, aren't people aren't looking at and developing an edge. I would say, you know, we talked a little bit about biomed, you know, before getting on the air, like that's a space where Eugene and my colleague, Andrew, I think legitimately have an edge. I've never heard anyone talk about this company. I don't think anybody understands their business model as well as we do. And so, you know, that's, that's how you get, you know, as long as you're willing to hold on to it, that's how you get a multi-bagger. If you find something that's small, look, the law of large numbers basically prohibit me from buying a $10 company and watching it go to 100 billion like that's just i mean yes it's possible very unlikely but could you see something could, could we see biomed go from you know 300 million something we own as i said um something we own biomed but could we could it could it go much higher and and be a 10 bagger over time certainly not a guarantee but could it happen yeah absolutely and so there's there's that that risk and reward and the just asymmetric upside when you find some things which is why you know I would say everyone should have some allocation to microcap. The issue, of course, is you can't scale it, right? You have to be willing to stay small. I mean, Eugene can comment on this, but I'd say 200 million or less like is the most you could actually manage a microcap and still invest in the things you want. And a lot of firms just aren't willing to do that. And so, um, you know, if you... If you want, if you're willing to stay small, if you're willing to stay kind of a boutique asset manager um, who prides in itself on doing a lot of work and will limit its assets and not get to, you know, whatever, a billion dollars in microcap, you have the chance to continue to outperform. Eugene, you want to comment on that? I mean, that, I, yeah, it, 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 with every fund manager I've talked to, you know, it's a very, it's a similar state. I mean, look, we're not breaking any ground. Everybody's listening like, yeah, Bob, we know this. I, I know, like, we, we know this. Like, it's, you know, you can only get to a certain point as a fund manager and stay small and, and focus on the small. But I mean, at a certain point, you know, I, I, I mean, who knows? I, I wonder, I wonder if that could change or, or if there's anything that could allow that to change. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Let, let's go big. Let's go big picture here. Maybe we can submit this to the uh, to the governing bodies at some point so that uh, it can help you guys not have to stay small in order to focus on uh, on micros. I don't know. Eugene, what do you think? 
Uh, you know, look, I, I think, well, it depends on who your target audience is in terms of your investor base, right? So, you know, for our, for our small cap value strategy, it's, it's primarily institutional. So it's like 95%. And, you know, we all, we have a bucket problem and, you know, just, this goes to, this is a message to all the fund managers out there who think that, you know, they can break into institutional space because they're doing such cool things. Well, you know, institutions are rigid and the consultants that they use have very specific mandates. And if you don't fit into a bucket, it's really hard for them to slot you in, even if, you know, if you, even if they like your strategy and really believe in it. And so what, we found like, if you go to the institutions, um, especially in micro, they're writing $100 million checks or $50 million checks. And it, they, they don't want to be 100 or 50% of your, of your strategy, right? So it's very difficult for someone to uh, run a, a micro cap focused fund. And, if, and then, then if they want to have allocation to small cap, they don't want to see, you know, $50 billion companies in there, right? Because that's not what they're paying you for. And they don't want to see $20 million companies in there because then they ask you, well, is that really appropriate for the liquidity profile that we desire? Because we need, you know, th these sorts of like, you know, let's say that they need to redeem tomorrow, right? Because we don't, we're not a hedge fund. We have a separately managed accounts for the most part. And so, we, you know, it's, it would be inappropriate for us to stick our clients with like really really illiquid things that um appear in micro and like i said that we've had some the, the successes that we've had in micro have grown up to be actually you know I'll, I'll say real companies but not in not a derogatory fashion but mostly in terms of liquidity and, and market cap size so when those have um there are a couple that have uh become mainstays within the small cap value portfolio, but they originally were micros, right? And those are appropriate for us to hold um, because again, they're they're at a size and liquidity profile that matches our clients' needs. So I, I don't I don't know on the institutional side if it ever will be the case that you know someone will allow us to go across the spectrum. That's just not how our the the, the business of the investment world has been built. Um, you know, certainly I think family offices and high net worth individuals don't care, right? I mean, for the most part, they just, they, they want to make money, right? It's, it's, you know, they don't, not, sometimes they, they have their own kind of bucket allocations, but for the most part, if they really like your strategy, you know, you, you'll get an investor. So, um, I mean, that, I guess that would be kind of my, my way to answer that. Gotcha. All right, Ben, anything you'd like to add or, uh, could we go, I, I have, I have my next topic teed up, ready to go. Let's way, go. Ben. You want to go? All right. Keep going. Well, here's the thing, because Ben, when we when we did our chat last year, you know, one of the one of the reasons we wanted to do another one today and include Eugene is because you were like, Bob, look, Eugene is kind of our main microcap guy, and he's got stories for days. Okay. Not only that, when you guys send me your you know your couple blurbs before this, you know, we we got Eugene known as the chief outside the box idea guy here. So that means that. You know, if my math is correct, uh, there's going to be some stories that we can kind of get into today and just kind of shoot the breeze on some fun ideas that people just love hearing about. So I know you guys had a couple ideas, a couple stories teed up ready to go for today. So I think everybody would love to hear about the Bill Miller story. So who wants who wants to, to give the yeah. background and tell that one? Okay. Wow. All right. Um, <laughs> yeah, you, you didn't know that one was coming. That was, you can blame Ben for that. 
Yeah, no, it's uh, it, it's it's wacky in the sense that um, this is far off, even in the micro world, right? This was like a, you know, at the time I think like an eight million dollar market cap company, and it had at that time it was closer to I'm gonna say twelve to thirteen million in cash, and uh, one of the owners that had about four or five percent of the company was a, a, a gentleman by the name of Marshall Geller who he we, we know him from overlapping with him on things like GPX which is a small cap value um, um, a core holding uh, or had, has been for a long time and uh, you know he was like hey um, there's a guy here named uh, Harvey Eisen who owns 30 about 30%. I'm just I'll round things up. Um, and he doesn't know what to do with this effective. You can almost think of it as a SPAC, right? It was a, it was a, it was a clean shell called wish W I S H. And it has some cash and it has, you know, quote unquote, smart old school, you know, New York, um, I don't know, ex heavy hitters, right? Harvey and like, ran in like the, the the Warren Buffett crew uh, for supposedly. Um, and so, you know, we're like, oh, great. Wow, this is kind of wacky. So I, being more entrepreneurial, said, okay, let me see if I can find some private businesses that they could buy and then we could partner with them um, by uh, uh, buying a, a chunk of his ownership. And then all of a sudden wake up with a company that has a real business, some cash and an operator. And, you know, we could make money, you know, multiples of it just by effectively IPOing something. Well, I don't, I don't want to bore everyone with the details, but let's, let's just say that Harvey Eisen is an interesting person that may or may not have, uh, you know, uh, may or may not see the, the wish as like a retirement fund or, or like a 401k for himself um, and doesn't really want to do anything. And so we, we threw all these ideas uh, up and, and we're like, hey, why don't we do this with you? Why don't we do that? Like, look at, you know, we've introduced him to a couple operators and met with him in New York and blah, blah, blah. And then... Um, you know, said, you know what, this guy isn't going to do a goddamn thing. So let's force it down his throat. So we basically, I started demon dialing. Um, <laughs> so it was Wish, let me even back up. Wish was actually a spin out of GP strategies, uh, something that we own back like in 1999. And when it was dividended out to shareholders, it, uh, you know, it, it maintained, you know, uh, this wacky shareholder base from the year 2000. So fast forward to, to like 2018, a lot of these people had either passed away or their kids had inherited it. So, they, so he owned like 30%, but then the other 70 was split among some very interesting shareholders such as Phil Frost, as an example, um, or uh, uh, Michael Price. So, you know, he, this, he had, you know, obvious connections back in the day and billionaires, for whatever reason, unknown to me still to this day, uh, had shares in this entity. But then there was, you know, the retail probably had closer to 40 to 
45%. And I tracked down three or four blocks and we start to accumulate, right? And literally this is me like going on Google being like, hey, you know, like uh, who is, you know, whatever, you know, uh, Bob Smith and, and it looks like he lives in Kansas and literally like stalking people to the point where I'm just like randomly trying phone numbers that Google's saying that this person, you know, this person lives at this address and with this phone number, I'm like, all right, let me see if I can call. Anyway, <laughs> track down um, enough holders so that we could bid them for their shares and um, start to get to, I think we got to like 12%. Um, we bought actually Mario Gabelli was another guy that has shares. So we bought a chunk of his um, uh, shares. Um, and then we got to a point where I think we we're at like combined like 15, we filed the D, you know, did um, whatever, wrote tons of letters started you know saying we're going to run, run a proxy against him kick him out um you know mailing letters to like the 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 grandmas out there um you know <laughs> hopefully you know like they care or even know how to vote a proxy um but in the in, in the meantime there's a gentleman who actually lives, lives in dallas that uh he his father had known harvey from like you know the 80s and had invested with harvey's uh investment company um and uh you know long story short he they wound up owning like gosh i want to say like 16 something percent it was a it was a really big chunk and it was split across like three different accounts and so i finally got a hold of the son and he's like oh my god yes someone wants to buy this thing like i've been you know my dad you know passed away and, and you know, i'm trying to see you know i was like he, he said I, I don't i don't want anything to do with this thing like this is my dad's friend like, i don't give a shit about this guy it's like okay let me buy your stock like i'm not going to cheat you i'm going to pay basically for, you know cash value right so um and he, he agreed and the the odd thing was that he didn't know how to get us the certificates so, so the, the, this is like an old school company where people literally had physical certs. So, so he had everything within, I think it was Wells, and he couldn't um, find the certificates or, or else we could have just done like a, like, hey, we wire you the cash, you send us the physical cert, and then we take it and we get it notarized. I mean, it, it, it's this, which by the way, I had, because I bought shares personally and literally from the guy that I bought it from, he had a physical certificate and I've never seen, I actually, I, I, I framed it because of, you know, something that I don't think I'll ever have again. Um, so anyway, so like, um, you know, we had to cross in the open. Okay, fine. No problem. We're thinking like, sweet, we got it. After this, we will own like a little bit more than Harvey and in, in a voting match, you know, let's say we had um, two of the three main, you know, billionaires locked up or at least we thought that they would vote with us and so you know this i remember i was actually out of the office and the transaction started happening um and i think we got like four percent done and then all of a sudden it's like the the, the share stopped like someone the, the offer was pulled and the trading, our, our, our trader, Matt, gets a call and, and it was the Wells Fargo trading desk. And he was like, hey, um, we can't, we're not, we're not trade. We stopped, we stopped the transaction. So why? 
And he's like, um, well, we can't do the trade right now. He's like, what the, what the fuck does that mean? And so <laughs> five minutes later, we see the entire block cross. Not with us. Someone had, someone had paid a penny more. So what had apparently occurred was that Bill Miller of, yes, that Bill Miller, um, his, he personally through, I think the fam his family office um, had called the Wells Fargo trading desk and said, stop this. I'm going to pay a penny more. And because the, the, the gentleman who was buying stock from had a, like a private wealth, something account with Wells, the fiduciary responsibility was on Wells. And so therefore they had to take the higher bid. And I mean, no one called us to see if we could, we wouldn't pay a penny over that. But so Bill Miller literally single-handedly stopped the transaction and then scooped us for a penny. And so we wake up, we're like, of all the things that we could have foreseen, right? The fact that Bill Miller would get out of bed for, a $10 million at that time, it was like probably $10 million market cap company and put his own capital to work just to block some schmoes from El Segundo. It, I mean, what? This was the most insane thing. I, I mean, it was a collection of ability. It was like a Bill Miller, uh, Joe Muliano, Muliano, whatever, however say his name, the guy from TD Ameritrade. Um, yeah, what's his name? Phil Frost, uh, Michael Price, uh, Mario Gabelli. I mean, the, 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 it's the who's who of investors within a $10 million market cap like entity. Like, what, what in the hell is... I, I just, I couldn't believe this was happening. And so, lo and behold, we, you know, we were basically stuck with like, you know, that's probably between 15 and 20%. But you know, us being, uh, you know, we would say, look, Harvey, we're going to harass you until you basically green mail us because we're still going to run the proxy. And he, he effectively bought us, um, out because, you know, you know, I, I think, I think it worked out for us as well, just because for whatever reason, Bill Miller was going to come in and protect Harvey. And maybe we could have won the vote by like, you know, 1% because they still didn't have 50 combined. Um, you know, but at the same time, it's like, you know, I, I, I don't, then we know that we'll be butting heads with Bill Miller. And I don't know. I, I just, we, we said, whatever, we'll, 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 we'll move on to the next ones. But it, it, this is the, the strangest thing ever. Cause you would think that three billionaires and a couple of like, you know, a hundred millionaire plus folks all within this tiny, tiny company that no one's ever heard of. Like, I don't think that's ever, ever happened, but sure enough, that's, that was one of our uh, one of our wacky, more wacky ones. I mean, what? I mean, I'm sure you guys talked about it quite a bit afterwards. I mean, you know, hindsight being 2020. You know, what do you think it was and why this happened? You know, Ben, what, what do you think? There's no logic to any of this, no. right? I mean, like anybody, <laughs> anybody who would tell you that like the markets are uniquely efficient and uniformly efficient regardless of your market cap spectrum is just wrong like these crazy things happen at the smaller end of the market cap spectrum um i mean this i think is a, is is a a 
very bizarre set of circumstances and characters. Like you could write a book on something like this. Um, but, you know, it's kind of emblematic of what you see in this space overall. And it's both an opportunity because, you know, and, and we do this pretty recent, we, we do this pretty often where we do a lot of work on a microcap company, smaller microcap company. And you know what, we, we try to buy it and we realize we just, there is no liquidity. It looks like there's liquidity, but when you try to start buying it, it's not there. So we have our traders, you know, have an order out there for a million shares. And every once in a while, you'll just get hit and you have 10 minutes to decide whether you want to do it. And, you know, thankfully we've done the work and we don't do this with every company, but we do this with, with things we've done the work on and then we get hit. And so that's the opportunity where like this can work out in your favor as well. But again, it's, it's one of the risks is that you build this position. You didn't spend all this time. You know, we were going to potentially have control of like a little shell that, you know, we could have done some interesting things with. Right. This was our Berkshire Hathaway. Right. And then Bill Miller of all people comes and scoops us like it's a moment in my career. I'll never forget our trader running in and be like, the deal's done. Like we're, we're stopped out. Like someone, someone, someone scooped us. And then later we find out it's like Bill Miller, um, you know, so for some, some investors like that's, this is like a scary story and it's a, you know, a reason to stay away from the space. I look at it differently. It's like, you just have to be patient. You have to be careful and you have to realize that there are going to be opportunities that pass you by. Um, and that there was, you're going to spend a lot of time on something that may not pan out because you just can't buy it. And that, that happens whether Bill Miller steals your shares or whether you just do a bunch of work and liquidity isn't there when you need it to be. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't extrapolate and say that there's, that there's any rhyme or reason for, what this, for why this happens, but it is certainly emblematic of how you can, you know, you can just see things that are totally inefficient, totally illogical, and in theory should be opportunities for value investors. Absolutely. So... Eugene, sorry. Yeah, I was gonna say, hey, I don't know the lesson learned. My lesson learned is uh, Harvey Eisen had great connections. That that's about it. I mean, um, I still he still hasn't um, kind of done a deal with uh, the the shell still exists. It's, it's I think they changed the ticker to I wish, um, and I wish they had actually done something. And and you know you know he had played ball. And, um, you know, I think we could have done a lot of cool things for him and created value for him because he was the biggest shareholder and that was the whole thing. Like, you know, I, I actually, you know, I take that back. The one thing I did learn is I don't want to be an activist. Um, I think activism takes so much time and it's mostly counterproductive because I don't want to yell at you know, Harvey, I didn't want to yell at him. I, I wanted, you know, I, I thought that we could do something in a, you know, um, professional manner that would benefit everybody, right? Because it's not, I wasn't, we weren't trying to like, you know, you know, nickel and dime him for control or whatever. We said, hey, let's, let's do something interesting here. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of people who go into investments with, with this idea that, hey, there's something wrong here and I'm going to be this a great activist and change stuff. I think that I think you are most more likely to lose just by having that mindset, because if there's something wrong and you have to like do a lot of work to change it, like maybe you should, you know, find an easier path to success. Um, and, and, and oddly enough, you know, um, you know, it's, well, not oddly, it's it, 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 irrespective of whether you go after a $10 million company or $500 million company, the actual cost is the same. And so activism in that world is much more difficult, uh, mainly because it 
from like an ROI perspective, it, it, it uh, destroys a, you know, a, a lot of like the reasons for you to, to even own the stock. If you have to sit there for a year, and, um, you know, God forbid that uh, you, you don't win the proxy, then you're stuck in something and people, you know, the management team and that and board hate, you know, hate your guts and you know, they're going to be even more entrenched. So anyway, that's, I think that's the lesson that I kind of took away. Like I, I don't want to um, have to do all this crazy you know, background work and like send letters and harass people. Like I, life's too short. I don't, I don't want to do that. Fair enough. Fair enough. Look, hey, activism, it's, it's definitely a different breed, right? You know, and at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself, like, where do I provide value? You know, where's, where's my value at? Is my value at just continuing to find and look for new opportunities? And, you know, if I see that this might need an activist situation, you know, I might invest alongside an activist that I like, but at the end of the day, it's not going to be me, right? You know, that it, it, it just, it's hey, it's a lot of work. I just did an interview with Connor Haley talking about his whole experiences with, uh, with uh, what was it, uh, CLCT and MLabs. And it's, a, I mean, it's, it's a lot of damn work, you yeah. know? So not that you guys don't like doing the work, don't get me wrong, but, you know. Well, I, 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 said, I would say Different that. kind of work. Yeah, it's certainly, it, it is very time consuming, especially when you have yeah. to proxy things and, and whatnot but um I, like i i do want to differentiate though because we internally believe in this idea of constructivism right where we don't have you know let's say that there's a really nice company and um they're you know, good returns good management team they're not they're not crooks they they want you know they're good stewards of capital but maybe their bench depth isn't quite good or they need extra oomph on um, doing diligence on, let's say, uh, deals or, or helping out with capital allocation or, or capital markets or some corporate finance stuff. And there is a place for uh, bigger shareholders to be um, constructivists where they can join the board in a friendly manner and say, look, we're, we're here for the long term. We own 10% of this. And I don't want to change anything about the company. I'm super stoked about the management team, but let me help you and open up the, some of our kind of backend assets, maybe even our own connections to uh, folks within your space, maybe that are bigger, uh, to see if we can help you in some other way. And I think that that's, that is a much more practical and doable approach. And um, I think it aligns um, ours, you know, us with our, uh, our, our, the companies that we own, um, much more so than if we were to be seen as like a threat. Gotcha. Got it. Got it. Got it. All right. So Ben, you know, Eugene gave us his weirdest story that he's experienced. I know you guys have experienced a lot of these weird stories together, but you know, from your perspective, what's, what's the weirdest microcap story that you've seen or been a part of other than, than this one, of course. Well, nothing will ever, I think, hopefully never um, surpass the weirdness of wish. I mean, I, I think for me, I two of my biggest investment lessons that I've carried with me, you know, since then happened with a microcap company. So I'll, I'll briefly describe it and, and, I'll, and I'll talk about the two lessons that I learned. Um, so this, we're, the company is going to mean name remain nameless to um, protect the, the the innocent or the guilty, more like the guilty. Um, 
And um, so this was a, an apparel licensing company that we were um, invested in. Um, and we know the management team well. Um, we had a good relationship with management. Um, the company had done really well um, as um, the, uh, the, the new CEO came in and started expanding the, uh, the, the business. The stock did really well, um, you know, but there was always an issue. Um, with the company and that they had a major one major retailer was like 20 percent plus of their sales and so at you know they'd had like a t- almost a 30-year relationship with this retailer um, and so it looked as though the relationship was safe however um, there was some internal changes at this retailer um, new ceo came in and basically change their strategy to, hey, we're not going to license other people's apparel brands anymore. We're going to do it in-house. And so this company lost that relationship. Um, And so the first thing you needed to, you you always want to invest in a business that can take a punch, right? You you don't want, and and this is the one of the, the, you know, it's, there's a beauty in small, in small and micro, but the risk in small and micro is that you have either customer concentration and market concentration, geographic concentration, so that if one of those things gets hurt, right, either through losing a customer or through some kind of, you know, economic downturn, right, you, you know, you're scrambling. So this, in this situation, the company thankfully was profitable enough to survive that hit, but it set the company down a path that basically, you know, led to, to a disaster. So, so the first lesson I, I took was invest with a business that, um, you know, doesn't have this binary risk and, and, and doesn't have customer concentration and, and, and kind of even higher than that, just can take a punch. Right. And the difference between this company that we're referencing and a $4 billion company is if a $4 billion company loses a customer, chances are, yeah, it may be next quarter's earnings are going to be crappy and the growth over the next year might be hard. But you know what I'm saying? It's never going to, it's never going to be like a, a threat to the, to the entity as a whole. Um, and so that event triggered, um, you know, some internal, what do we do next at this company? And what they decided to do was make an acquisition. Um, and so another thing to remember about microcaps is that, you know, acquisitions, especially with small companies can be very time consuming for management, for your employees, right? There's just, you know, any, ask anybody who's done M&A and, you know, there's small deals take, even a small deal takes up a lot of your time and can be very expensive, right? There's lawyer's fees and accountant fees and so all that stuff. And so the company tried to do a very, very complicated deal where they were like transferring IP from Europe and they like, and I forget all the details, but the financing of it was based on the IP. And it was just, it was a very, it was, it levered them up and it was a complicated deal with a family who apparently was a motivated seller. And they just, they literally couldn't do it. They just couldn't integrate they couldn't get the, you know, they, they basically, there was some, I would say fraud in the sense that there were some receivables that didn't show up. And I mean, that deal was, you know, was, was set this company off a path that they could not come back from. And so the other thing um, that I learned is, you know, small companies and small management teams are not necessarily you know, the best 
at doing capital allocation changes in M&A transactions. And, um, you know, even if you have a North Star, which the CEO, you know, for the most part did, you know, he used to hand out copies of the outsiders to all of his, you know, all of his friends. So he had a North Star, but they just couldn't execute. It was, you know, it was too difficult. You know, maybe, you know, there was some definitely like, you know, eyes were bigger than your stomach kind of a deal. Um, and they were never able to recover from it. And, and so, you know, I, I I learned throughout this process an incredible lesson about people and people's motivations and, you know, what people are trying to really understand what people are capable of looking back in their history and understanding like, hey, yeah, you, I was, you were a good operator. You grew the business. You were good. You were a good salesperson. But all of a sudden, you're trying this really difficult cross-border M&A deal with all of these weird tax issues and an IP transfer and expensive debt. Like it was too much, right? And and so you know, and and we were talking about this, at, you know, at the lunch table today about about Biomed is that you know another company that, that we, the company we reference is like, you know, they they said on their call, you know, we we haven't historically done M and A as a part of our growth strategy because they've had such an organic growth strategy, and you know, it's it gets a little scary when someone says that because like you just worry that they're going to do the transformative deal that's going to derail all of the success that they they've had. Um, so again, like you know, Eugene spends a lot more time there, but I will say that I will never forget those two lessons. Like, you know, make sure that the management team knows what they're doing in terms of like actually physically completing a transaction and diligencing a transaction, and then always invest with a business that can take a punch. Um, and, and I take that, I take those lessons with me, you know, in, 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 in all of my people assessment and all of my business assessment, and even as I'm looking at larger companies. That's great advice right there. I mean, so, you know, we talk, I mean, look, for the most part on my pod, uh, whenever I ask, you know, the biggest investing experience that that taught you the most, you know, it tends to be a negative experience or a failed experience. But I mean, have you guys had any kooky, wacky experiences that are like, oh, this worked out? You know, this actually was a great, this was a, you know, on the monetary side, it worked out great. Not just, you know, the wealth of knowledge that was gained from that experience, because there's something that can be learned from any experience, right? And to, especially if you lose, you got those silver linings. But I mean, have, have, there, have you guys had any great wins that started off or just continued to be a wacky weirdo all the way through? And you know, all right, well, this, this worked out. Yeah, I uh, um, actually one that's, uh, uh, I literally just had a call with um, this, the new CEO of this company. Uh, we haven't owned it for three years. I just, you know, checked in to see um, what, what, you know, what's so what's different about it now, uh, given that it, its valuation is approaching like stratospheric levels. Um, anyway, uh, this little company called, well, it used to be a little company called uh, Simulations Plus. The ticker is SLP. We don't own it. Um, we used to own it, and uh, I I remember this very distinctly. I, I found it at and very rarely will like a B Riley conference result in anything but um, me being annoyed at having wasted a couple of days of my life. Um, but B Riley, uh, you know, they had you know whatever six billion uh, little tiny companies go there, and typically it's the same ones kind of recycled. But uh, these guys showed up out of nowhere, and I hadn't seen them before took a meeting with uh, 
um, John DeBella. Uh, he was uh, at the time, I think the like the, his, his official title was like VP of Sales or something. And so you know, I sat down with him and started talking about what what this company was, and I was like. I admit you're 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 a what you're a you're a you're a pharma simulation software company that does uh, uh, pharmacokinetic like uh, absorption simulation trials for like uh, or t- t- uh, tests for um, you know for any of pharma companies that that uh, have drug studies coming up and he's like yeah, you know yeah we started start talking and um, he was uh, he was like he was an engineer by training and had just been uh, kind of put in a sales role like that year or something like that. And it, and it showed like, I mean, uh, being a, a former engineer, like I, uh, we're not built to sell. Let's just put it that way. We're not, we're not like, I don't know, the, the engineering mind is not a uh, salesperson's mind most of the time. Um, anyhow, but I was like, oh, this is kind of fascinating. And when back to the office and did some work and um lo and behold it was a and I kid you not it was a i think at that time they were doing like 14 million in revenue or something like that but at 40 percent EBITDA margins it was the cleanest like squeaky clean like you know steady eddy linear upwards trending growth projection as if you know bernie madoff had drawn, drawn the line right it was i was like what in the world is this thing? So started calling around, like you know, getting a little bit familiar. I've never, you know, I've never. I, I, I whilst I understand software, but like this is a very nuanced piece of software that does a very nuanced thing for a pharmaceutical. And I've never, I'm not a pharma person. I'm not a PhD, and I don't know what the ninety nine percent of the acronyms that they were using were completely foreign to me. So I spent like about three, four weeks just reading everything I could on simulations. And lo and behold, um, San Diego happens to be the home for the AAPS conference, which is uh, for, the, again, the three people that maybe that registered something for. Um, it, it's like the, the biomedicals industries like Mecca. So any if you're a PhD researcher for any sort of the pharma companies, you go there and you talk about all these, these things that you're working on. And again, I went there um, uh, close enough to here. So we drove down and, and went for the day. And besides not understanding, again, 99% of the things that they were talking about, um, what I did is I went and met you know, randomly like 20 to 30 different PH, you know, uh, researchers from various companies, Pfizer's, you know, Genentex and you know, whoever, right. The, the big boys were there and uh, I'll, you know, talk to them about like, you know, their backgrounds and eventually got to the question like, well, who do you use for, um, you know, absorption rate simulations? And I think about 65%, good, about two thirds said this little company based here in Lancaster, north of LA. What? Okay. <laughs> immediately, you know, on my phone, like, Jeff, we have to buy this thing. Like immediately, and, you know, at the time it was, I don't even know if it was like $40 million market cap. It was, it was non-existent. Um, and like I said, that's, we, we, we did at that point have a, a, a one client specifically that had an SMA that allowed us to do these things, right? And we bought a, a position and, you know, I drove up to Lancaster. I met the, the, the founder, Walt, uh, uh, I can't say his last name. It's like a, it's a Polish last name. So it's like Stolish or something like that. Um, 
anyways and he was this like literally a rocket scientist like a Waltosh, i think it is Waltosh, thank you yeah um and so i i uh you know started talking to him and he you know tells me that he was in, he was in the navy and was in in like i think air force and then he was in the andrews air force base at first at first he was in alabama designing missile systems and he did simulations for like missile trajectories and flight paths for missiles and then he was like oh this is kind of like of course you know <laughs> how he connected these dots he's like oh this is kind of like you know the the, the fusion rate of 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 solids into like uh, uh, liquids and so he started modeling that and then all of a sudden that's ap applicable to how your liver or your kidneys whatever absorb drugs that some you know whatever the the the, the technical rate right and so probably that into this little beautiful niche company that was staffed by a bunch of uh, uh some computer science folks and some ex you know pharma phds and just steady eddie kind of uh, bootstrapped it himself and you know grew on their own and just to let it like why why this was interesting for me is because he had done basically he'd worn every hat he was like the, the cto coo uh ceo you know like the chief salesperson chief marketing everything right and then he hired this guy john um a young guy come in to come in and then i, I was like well Walt, and what's you know i mean you you've been doing this for you know 20 years on your own what's going on and he's like well you know i think i want to get bigger and I, you know, I think there's a real opportunity here. And I realized that, you know, my own shortcomings, and I can't do everything, you know, I can't hold on like this. And for a founder, and this is one of the very most important things for a founder of a tiny company to tell you that, that is the catalyst to know that there's something interesting, maybe may or not be good, but interesting happening because it is a hard thing for entrepreneurs to do to actually say like, you know, this baby that I've grown and nurtured, I'm okay kind of maybe like letting go a little bit and, and, and trusting people enough to come in and help me make it bigger. And so John was the very first salesperson he's ever had. And, and so I was like, huh, okay, well, you know, are you gonna add more? He's like, yeah, I think I'm gonna have like, you know, two to three wow right a dedicated salespeople and on top of that he did his first ever deal when he bought um this beautiful business cognizant out of buffalo um and i did a bunch of work on them because at that time we'd actually owned uh, a small cap uh, cro um albany molecular that was purchased and they had a very small division that was akin to what these guys were and what they were was effectively a very 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 high-end group of phds again that were out contracted with you know by big pharma like huge companies would go to them like hey we can't solve this problem can you do it for us and they're like oh sure and they had this pkb tool that they used internally and they were users of slp software and so it was like a marriage made in heaven because they were effectively supposedly they were going to be like the lead gen source so did his first deal you know going back to ben's point like you know be careful but he you know he didn't integrate like the, the, the thing I liked about it, it was like I asked him, like, well, well, you know, what, what's your integration plan? You know, doing the typical like douchey uh, MBA question. And he looked at me and he's like, I'm just going to let them do what they were doing yesterday. <laughs> so I was like, OK, well, you know, it, I it, it, effectively, I mean, that that that's that would work because, you know, it's just like, you know, changing the nameplate and be like, OK, you're now you're, you're a different company, but you're doing the exact same thing. Um, and, and, and then, you know, 
I think when we were buying it, you know, back in the days when uh, software companies weren't trading for 35x of revenue, I think we, you know, we were buying it at, at eight and a half or sometimes EBITDA. It was the, I mean, looking back at it, I wish I should have just mortgaged my entire house and bought every share I could, because um, because lo and behold, within two years, uh, John and 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 team. And might I add, by the way, that, like their sales uh, technique didn't really improve other than they actually went to conferences and put up like uh, uh, slides and like uh, billboards, and, you know, saying like, hey, look at us. Um, and then <laughs> the funny part is, again, being engineers, they thought that was good enough. So they just went back home and just waited by the phones for people to call. But people did call. And organically, they started growing 15 and 20 percent. And all of a sudden, I don't know why or how or when, but someone picked up on this like beautiful little business and stocks started running. And, uh, you know, we wound up selling without we our geniuses. We sold like in the mid twenties, um, you know, and Walt actually, he stepped back and retired into executive chairman role, brought in um, another gentleman who that I spoke to last week and I can't remember his name now. Um, but uh, the new CEO who came from uh, a former uh, a competitor called Farside, um, that had built and sold a very similar business to private equity and had built and sold a second very similar business also to private equity. And Walt had known him for like 20 odd years. And so he came in and started running this thing and it just moonshotted to like the seventies. Um, I mean, I, I think at that, at one point, I, I, I mean, it just, it made me laugh because this is this little tiny company in Lancaster that I had visited and met the, the, you know, the, the crack team, which by the way, their offices look like, uh, I don't know, something from, uh, they were like a, a mortgage banker's office, certainly not a, a, a biopharma software company. Um, anyway, uh, and for these guys to be, you know, worth over a billion dollars when I found them when they were like 40, I mean, it, 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 it makes me smile because Walt is a really, really great person in general. And I'm happy for their success. Um, I, you know, I kick myself for, for being the typical value guy and saying like, oh my God, 20, 26 is crazy. Like who would pay 26 for this? And then watch it go to 72. Um, but anyway, I, that, that was a big, you know, that was a big win. And, and I certainly learned, like, you know, kind of like the old, Buffetty sort of, uh, uh, you know, find good businesses run by quality people that have a ton of skin in the game who care about their employees, who care about the the direction of the company, the operations of the company, the profitability of the company, focus on free cash flow, all these things. I mean, Walt did it not really knowing that that, you know, that's kind of like what Buffett heads would look for. Um and just look for that catalyst to unlock the latent potential. And for that, I mean, it was just it, the catalyst in this case came from him. Like no one pushed him to do anything. He just one day said, you know, what? I, I think I've taken it to as far as I can and I want to uh, be bigger. And I believe that people care enough about our product in which they did. Um, certainly my, my channel checks um, certified that. Uh, and so, you know, I want to be bigger. So I want to hire some interesting folks, maybe do a deal. And that really got the ball going and, you know, it hasn't stopped rolling for them. They, I'm, I'm super you know, a, for them. And so. that's a great story. It, funny. You mentioned SLP that I've actually been trying to get them on for the uh, microcap graduation series and talk to Walt because I, I mean, I, I haven't followed as closely as you have, but I, I remember seeing them at a conference, I think at an investor conference. 
uh, not AAPS. I don't know if I'd, I don't know if I'd make it to AAPS, but <laughs> but at an investor conference, you know, I mean, for the last like five years, right? Something like sure, that. Yeah. They've they've been in all of them, but um, you know, we're kind of we're actually getting close to the end here because I know we got I know we can do a thousand more stories. You guys are going to come back on and give us some even more. So you know, I, I want to kind of close out with some final thoughts. You know. What what you guys are seeing? How you guys are approaching microcap now, especially from the from the value perspective? You know what what do you see going on or experience? Let's say in the last year, and how has that made you think about now moving forward here in twenty twenty one? Ben, you, you want to take that one? Yeah, I'll I'll start. I mean, I, I think Eugene and I, as Eugene start said at the start, we've kind of came to come to the same conclusion about what how to how to approach investing overall, but you know, in microcap through different lenses. And it's it's about investing in good people, um, in, in good businesses, and you know paying a slight discount to intrinsic value as opposed to looking digging for you know very cheap, um, you know probably maybe un, you know not particularly good businesses. So I think we're going to keep doing that. And I will say uh, there's going to be hopefully in the next 24 months an incredible opportunity in microcap um, for maybe for two reasons. One. Um, there's a lot of SPACs out there right now. There's 300, I think, plus SPACs out there right now who have raised money. There's going to be some that can't do deals. Um, and potentially, you know, there are people who can, you know, whatever you, you buy, you buy a bunch of stock at eight and you vote against a deal and you cash in at 10. So there's going to be some of those opportunities for people who are willing to play in the micro cap space. But the other thing is even the SPACs who have completed deals, I mean, just reading through the filings from a SPAC, it is just the, the amount of promotional, just almost out and out, right, like speculation and lying that that are uh, that the SEC allows in their financials versus a proper IPO where you're not allowed to do that um, is suggestive to me that there's a lot of hype that is not going to live up to, um, you know, kind of its, its billing. And so, Bobby, I don't know if you remember, but even a couple of years ago, people were talking about, oh, the public markets are going away. Everyone's going to stay private. You know, the private equity is going to buy up all the companies and the U.S. public markets are going to like be shrinking and who's going to want to invest there? Well, the, a couple of things happened. One, the IPO window opened up and people just hit it as hard as possible, right? And the second thing that's happened is all these SPACs have been raised and a lot of them have closed deals. So now we have a bunch of new public companies, some of which have been bought with by a SPAC, real businesses that just are not going to live up to whatever the hype was. And so a, the busted SPAC space in microcap, I think is going to be an awesome, awesome hunting ground. And so we're already starting to keep track of like, where SPACs are trading, like the ones that have, have you know, actually made deals and then the ones that are still waiting um, in, um, to, to, to find deals. And those are started to like in mass trade below $10. Um, and so there's that, there's going to be, I think, a dual opportunities in microcap um, over the next 24 months as the bloom comes off this rose, as it inevitably will, because too much capital flowed into too few opportunities. And um, so we're excited about that. So that's kind of like a not right now, but just keep an eye on that. Um, and 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 I think microcap is going to be a really fun space um, to 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 kind of pick through the wreckage of that over the next two years. Very good, Eugene. You want to add to that, or uh, what do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'd say that um, the beauty about micro to me is that it's it it never stops giving, and I know microcap 
the you know the indices or Russell whatever you however you want to measure it it was been, you know just a rocket ship upward but it's not a uniform ro rocket ship up, upward right and, and I think microspace the microspace is skewed a lot but sometimes by like odd biopharmas and other stuff that kind of is as an ancillary beneficiary of uh, zero interest rates right um, but there's always something to do I mean there's so much out there and you know if just frankly there's no institutional coverage anymore and and i'll just add one more little thing for for people that are you know maybe follow the russell reconstitution uh, um, that's happening um, or will happen i think within a month um russell changed the way that they uh, uh they cut off the 2000 and so a ton of companies over i think it was like eight or nine hundred under 250 million market cap are going to get booted and um there's a lot of companies and again i encourage people to do this uh that you know are in like the 100 to 150 million market cap range that russell you know the indices and, and the etfs and all this other stuff they they hold a, you know not an insignificant amount right and and i know that a lot of these trades you know the hedge funds are ever put on early on but you know some of these things you can't short so it's not like you know the the stock has moved down uh, because there's heavy shorting pressure is just um it's just selling that's happening and um i think it'll provide uh, uh interesting uh, entry points for some companies that you know are just going to are getting thrown out and again this again going back to what the beauty in microcap is that no one cares <laughs> no one cares about your 100 million dollar you know market cap company and that uh for people that have um you know the the capital deployed looking for those opportunities it, it, it provides a, an interesting uh you know a pond deficient very good well with that uh where can our audience go and find more information about both of you guys as well as cove street capital uh ben yeah so covestreetcapital.com we um we're pretty active on our blog eugene and i have uh, done a number of podcasts um discussing you know different ideas and 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 our um you know our philosophy and process so covestreetcapital.com um and uh, the thoughts tab is is where you're going to find a lot of information from us um i don't think eugene's on twitter but i am uh you can follow me at the inoculated investor i took a six-year hiatus from twitter and i am back um and i'm enjoying you know the interactions and that i'm having with people and so um you'll, you can see me posting pretty frequently there um and and as always like always interested to talk to people who who um who you know listen to what we say and give us feedback we're always interested in in people who disagree with us or agree with us so feel free to reach out if you have any comments or questions six year hiatus well, well before i let you what brought you back you know, missing the action, um, missing that thing so, so community. Very briefly, I, I, I really wanted to understand the attraction of it. Um, this is this is what you get with living with a with a. My wife is a marketing PhD, and she's a behavioral like a, a specialist on behavioral finance and behavioral basically people's behaviors. And she's she always reads the comments. Like she doesn't even read articles. She reads the comments because she wants to understand what people are thinking. This was like my trying to understand what in the world people are doing spending all their time like on twitter and um i've been pleasantly surprised um and i think it's because you know what you know the quote unquote fintwit world um is very I, I don't see a lot of like political arguments and like you know you know republicans versus democrats stuff like it's mostly about investing and so yeah i'm sure there's some like nasty twitter battles about things but i don't see that like um 
you know, Twitter trolls and like all the things that you hear about when like in this mythical Twitter, if you've never used it, um, all these awful things you hear about, like, I don't see it. I feel like it's a pretty like interesting, thoughtful community. Of course, there's stuff you want to filter out, but you don't, you don't have to follow those people. So I found it to be like an interesting um, source of news and an interesting source of new relationships. We actually just got our first client coming from Twitter who, you know, follow, you know, followed me on Twitter and listened to me and Eugene on podcast. So it's, it's been an interesting return. And, um, you know, I, 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 I now like take back all the bad things I, t- I said about it in the past. <laughs> <laughs> I feel, you know, Ben, I feel you on that. I, Twitter is my go-to news source now, you know, it's just, I, I'd much rather scroll through Twitter and see what, what's going on in the world, especially because of FinTwit. Yeah. I just, I, I love it. You can really get a sense of like where, where the tide is turning that day. You know, it's, it's such a great community, but, um, We'll, we'll save that for the next talk. You know, we'll talk, you know, I, I've been wanting to do a TIR episode about a, a, about FinTwit and, and all the benefits of it and, or not, because I think it's pretty interesting. But with that, dudes, I'll let you go. Enjoy the afternoon. We're both on West Coast time. So enjoy. It's a beautiful day. I'll look at us. It We're is sitting inside. Day. What are we doing? But uh, I really do appreciate you guys taking the time and I look forward to hearing more stories soon. Yeah, I mean, just inevitably, we're microcap investors, so there will be more stories. That we can promise. No doubt. No doubt. Absolutely. Eugene, Ben, always a pleasure, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Bobby. Appreciate it. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. This episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast is brought to you by Friedman LLP, a top 40 global accounting, tax, and business consulting and advisory firm, providing a full spectrum of services for public and private companies since 1924. Contact Friedman when you will need to raise capital and adhere to U.S. standards. The Friedman partners will work diligently with you to provide the financial assurance, regulatory, and transactional services you need. When the stakes are highest, Friedman makes sure you are well equipped. For more information and to get a Friedman free consultation, please call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. Again, for more information and a free consultation, call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com.